Welcome to Taking Ship and Happy New Year. Uh, welcome to this guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Frank Spring, joined by Ellie Jacobs, a man whose New Year's resolutions are as wise and infinite as the fables of Aesop. Indeed. Uh, we are missing Maggie Moore this morning, who is uh, out with a little bit of what they call the, the, the January sickness, um, but she'll be fine, and we look forward to having her back aboard J- Salty Jason's Revenge in the near future. The January sickness is not a euphemism for something terrible or uh, or disreputable. We want to emphasize that. Yeah, it's really it's really just everybody is sick in January. Yeah, although it sounds like it could be, but it is not a it is not a euphemism. She's just done well. Yeah, she's just on. She's just got a cold because that's what happens in January. Yeah. Um, everybody should please uh, rate us and leave comments. Uh, we've noticed a, uh, a lack of them recently, so please everybody get on the bandwagon, start up a new iCloud account or a new. Uh, account that you can leave the same review under a different name. We're big fans of that. Um, We do like making a show that people will enjoy listening to. So please do give us guidance, whether it's privately or publicly shaming us where we, we, we really don't care. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can follow us on Twitter at at taking ship and that's ship with a P as in prepubescent. You can follow Maggie at Maggie M zero one two me at Ellie Jacobs and Frank at Frank spring. So today's guest who we'll bring on here in a second uh, is... First guest of the year. First guest of the year. And we're starting off with a genuine bang. Uh, we are I feel bang- like we're really raising the bar way too high for us to be able to keep this level up. Yeah, we're, 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 we've blown expectations horrifically, which again, honestly, is extremely on brand for us. Mm-hmm. So our first guest is a writer on politics. Uh, some of you will also have seen his writing on sports. Uh, he writes under the pseudonym uh, Robert Wheel uh, or Bobby Big Wheel on Twitter. Uh, it is, again, a, a pseudonym, a nom de plume, a nom de guerre, indeed, uh, a nom de internet, uh, if, if I may make so bold before one of you, uh, one of you pummels me. Uh, so we are, I think, authorized to say that his real name is actually Aaron. Uh, so Robert Wheel, Bobby Big Wheel, uh, has written on sports uh, for SB Nation and Deadspin and various other sites, but he is a political writer. Uh, he came out of, uh, out of politics uh, professionally. Uh, and then took a, an, an interregnum that basically lasted the length of the Obama administration uh, in the private sector uh, and essentially making snarky observations through an anonymous Twitter account. This is also when he did a lot of his sports writing. Uh, in November of 2016, uh, he began to take a somewhat different tack, uh, as I think a lot of people did, uh, and got focused on trying to get people involved in politics uh, effectively. He's written for 50 States of Blue, uh, and he wrote for Vice about house races, wrote a series for them called House Party that is excellent, uh, the purpose of which in part was tell people not waste money on, uh, on potential losing candidates and really invest, help donors really invest their money well. Uh, and most recently, uh, he and uh, he and another uh, organizer activist named Sean McElway uh, conceived of a program called Give Smart, uh, which is which helps to send small dollar donations uh, to state legislative races. Um, and he does this now with an organization called Future Now. So we're going to be talking with him here in just a moment. Uh, Robert Wheel, uh, Bobby Big Wheel, sometimes known as Aaron. So now, welcome to Taking Ship, Bobby Big Wheel. Bobby, thanks for joining us. Hey, Frank, thanks for having me. So I want to dive in straight into uh, the area where you did a lot of writing uh, last cycle on house races in, in 2018. I thought you had some really good analysis as part of House Party. Uh, I would love to see if with the benefit of a few weeks perspective, there's anything else from uh, the 2018 cycle that really stands out to you as something that, uh, the, that, that our listeners should know uh, as we think about what, what happened however long ago that was two months two years it feels like a long time so yeah anything from 2018 that uh, you think we should talk about 
Yeah. So um, I think, you know, my initial takeaway from the 2018 uh, results and something that I did a victory lap on was, you know, a year ago, my whole shtick was, you know, don't look at, don't get, you know, uh, lured in by maybe like the sexiest uh, candidates, um, you know, who might be interesting. Like, you know, this person's going to turn a red area blue. Uh, you know, as I said, look instead to places that either voted for Clinton uh, that have a Republican representative or voted for Obama and have a Republican representative. Those are the key targets. And then lo and behold, uh, you know, heading into uh, the elections, there were, I think, 25 Republican seats that were voted for Clinton, but were held by a Republican. And that number is now three. Uh, and then similarly, uh, I think uh, of the 11 Republican held seats that went for uh, Obama twice, but then went for Trump. Uh, Democrats won seven of them, or it might be. I, I think that's about right. So I think the story of this is, you know, it really isn't hard to look at where you should target and look at where the best opportunities are. I think if you look at top lines, that gives you a very good idea of uh, the most ripe opportunities. And so that was my initial reaction. And then delving a little deeper, uh, you know, so. If you look at, um, so Republicans right now hold uh, three seats that vote for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 presidential race. Uh, there are 21 additional seats that voted for Trump, but only with a plurality. Uh, do you know how many of those Republicans hold today? Please tell us. Four. <laughs> yeah, four. And so, I mean, this is a good sign for, for you know, in general, it's, you know, if a place... You know, if a place doesn't give Trump 50 percent or, you know, and then there are and then they had a bunch of Democrats did well also in seats that like barely voted for Trump. Um, so, I mean, if, if you're looking at a place that didn't give Trump more than like 50, 51 percent, you know, that's a place that's willing to support a Democrat. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the places those are the places that Democrats should really be targeting going into 2020. It's also to me very good news for 2020 because you're not going to have as big a third party vote as you did in 2016. And those third party voters are going to go somewhere. And it seems like the people that didn't like Clinton or Trump are going to are supporting Democrats down ballot, which I consider to be an excellent sign heading into 2020. Mm -hmm. Why is it that you think I mean, this this may not call for, you know, for, for great depth of analysis, but why is it that those third party voters from both sides, right, from either either from the from from you know third parties on the left and, and presumably you know, potentially libertarian third, uh, third parties on the right seem to be coming home to the Democratic Party or else just not voting at all. On the yeah, right. I, I mean, it's so third party voters, um, you know, you you have a lot of different uh, types of people into that bucket. Um, you have people who might other I mean, I'd, I'd say largely there are two different types of people who vote for a third party. One is someone who has who wants to participate in the electoral process, like an like a normal person, and will vote for major party candidates, um, but has particular grievances with the candidates in that race of both major parties. And so, you know, I, I really think that like someone voting for a green or libertarian, that they, they really support very little of the green or libertarian agenda. But it, they're, you know, they're they're really just protest vehicles. And then there's another bucket of voters who just don't see politics in the way that most people do. Um, and just, you're not, you know, they're the most unreliable votes out there. Like, you know, the, you know, they'll vote based on how the wind shifts. 
um, literally. Um, and you, you know, so for those people, like you, you can't like, you know, that's, that's why I don't believe in adding Jill Stein's vote totals to Hillary Clinton's because there's so many, there, there are too many people that vote that are like that, that you can't rely on to do anything. I mean, you can't rely on them to go to work in the morning. Um, and that's a really, I totally agree. That's a really, that's a fundamentally different voter. That's an absolutely. Yeah. Different, you know, and so, you know, and there's, there's scholarship on this on kind of where, you know, in a two party race, where these people go, if they, you know, undervote the races, et cetera. Um, and, you know, we really don't know, but, you know, it's obvious to me that a significant portion of these people that support third parties, and then also just areas where Trump and, you know, you're also talking about, you know, the electorate isn't um, static. You have people coming in and out of it. Um, and so the areas that Trump really couldn't crack 50% or can only barely track 50%, there's also enough people who either didn't participate in, in 2016 or perhaps, you know, soft Republican votes that there's the drop off there that Demo- that's fertile ground for Democrats. Can you tell us a little bit about the, so the, the premise of House Party is was, which again is your your column for for Vice, uh, was essentially taking a very structural look at politics, um, and yeah. that's the idea was it's I mean it is completely no it's not the complete op it is sort of the opposite of the horse race which is the way that most of these things are covered. What is the quality of the candidate? Is does this candidate have the stuff to beat an incumbent Republican and so forth? Uh, your your view was a very structural one, and that and that that structural view appears to have been broadly borne out, uh, significantly I mean, substantially borne out in fact. Uh, can you just tell us how did that? How did you arrive at that premise? How was House Party born? If you don't mind my asking, if you can say House Party was born um, when I was on Twitter, seeing David Yankovich solicit funds to move to Wisconsin to run against Paul Ryan, and seeing people donate to him. And I saw this one poor person. I forgot that happened. That was so awesome. Yeah, and I saw this one. There was this one, you know, poor old lady who said, "I'm on a fixed income, but Paul Ryan." is trying to take that away. So I'm giving part of it to you. And it's just, no, no, no. Oh. People need to know like where this money is best allocated. I, I hope I played some small role in kind of, because I think if you look back at, at this, you know, really right after Trump was elected, I think it was, it was a very unsure playing field. There were a lot of people that were like pretty new to politics coming in which is was great because I think uh, the Democratic establishment really needed the jolt of energy that people like like me and you are providing right now, um, and aren't beholden to kind of the way that they, that hadn't worked before. Um, but there are also a lot of you know bad actors in, in there, and a lot of pe- people really wasting money. Um, and I think if you look at 2018, um, it's it's hard for me to say there's you know people really wasted too much money. Um, obviously there were bad candidates here and there, but, um, I think overall Democrats were pretty efficient with how they spent resources and they ended up winning. And, you know, the great thing about this incoming majority is that it's durable. If you look at 2006, uh, when Democrats won the, when, you know, took back the house the last time they, it was a scattershot win of kind of places that leaned Republican and, you know, leaned Democrat and those places that leaned Republican, you know, those are the places where or Republicans just kind of swamped them in 2020 and 2010. Um, you know, but looking at where Democrats won today, I mean, these are, you know, like they won the Washington's eighth congressional district. Republicans aren't going to spend $3 million to try to win back a Clinton seat. 
yeah. uh, you know, or like all the Orange County seats. Republicans aren't, you know, those those are expensive races. Those are, cost like five million bucks. You really think they want to spend five million bucks winning back a seat in California? And some uh, of those had pretty big margins too. Like, I mean, that, yeah. was, that was the thing that really struck me is that you know we were all watching the, you know, those those you know those those final rounds of mail-in ballots that seemed to come in over the last two weeks. Uh, yeah. And there's like a ten-point swing over the court, you know, from election night to the end of it. Like those are, I mean, I was gonna, I wanted to ask you about Orange County specifically because it seems like. I mean, it, wow, like you'd have to spend, you know, $25 million trying to win back some seats that were lost by an average of something like four and a half. Yeah, or five. And, and, you know, I guess, but, but, and then, you know, the 2020 house battlefield is going to look very different because now that Republicans are, and, and, you know, I understand why the NRCC did what did like spending a lot of money to defend people like Kaufman and Comstock in races that were lost because, you know, it's their job to service their members. Well, now, I mean, they're kind of in the same position that Democrats were in 2018 in some regards, because now they really don't have too many, uh, you know, weak members that they have to shore up and they can really focus on offense. And the places where they'll go on offense are places where they didn't really play very much in 2020. I mean, obviously, like some people like Kendra Horn or Joe Cunningham is going to be a prime target. But if you look at, you know, like Colin Peterson, they didn't really put much of a fight against him. He sits in a 62 percent Trump seat. Um, and so, you know, the, the battlefield is going to change in 2020, but back to my further, you know, back to my earlier point though, I mean, that's a really great sign because that means that Democrats won places that will stick with them. And now they can kind of rely on those congressmen to be more reliable votes for them in the future and going to a potential 2020 future state, uh, with a democratic president and Congress, you know, you're a Democratic president would rely far less on conservative Democrats in vulnerable seats than Obama was in 2008 and 2009, I should say. Mm-hmm. Is there anyone – I realize this is sort of counter to the point of, of House Party. Are there any seats or any Democrats who won um, – yeah, let's speak in praise here. Any Democrats who won that you thought – you know, they had they had good solid structural advantages there were you know in their in their district but also the quality of this particular campaign or candidate really made the difference I understand this wasn't the point of your analysis if none spring to mind that's fine uh, but anyone that where you thought to a certain degree like the this was a, a good marriage of both can of of uh, structural advantage and high quality candidate or campaign oh absolutely um I, and you saw that in some like Colin Allred in uh, the 32nd district in Texas. Yeah. Um, you know, I had been talking to the people there and, you know, in Dallas, uh, some of the local groups, uh, heading into the primary. And I, you know, I was like, hey, so what do you think about uh, about this? Like, people think Meyer and Salerno might win this, and like, Allred's going to win. He's like, they have the best, he has the best turnout operation we've ever seen. He's one of the best candidates we've ever met. This guy's for real. And he ended up being, you know, people thought that was going to be a very close, I certainly thought that was going to be a very close race. I thought that um, Sessions had a built-in, you know, like 48% or so base that would never leave him. Mm-hmm. All right, ended up winning by like six points. Yeah. Um, it wasn't even that close. And I really doubt Republicans go after him uh, in 2020. Um, Haley Stevens in Michigan's 11th seat. Mm-hmm. Uh, full disclosure, I've known her for like 15 years. And I thought, she's a, like, I've known that she's going to be a rock star forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the second that she announced she's running for Congress there, I'm like, oh, well, she's going to win. And she ended up, I mean, she ended up against a very bad opponent. Um, but, uh, that, that was certainly enough. Um, yeah. So, I mean, and, 
you and know, that was also that, that was also a fairly robust primary, was it not? I can't remember her race. It was. Um, it, it, it was a very was. crowded primary, um, and she was not the favorite heading into that. Uh, but she she basically outworked everyone. But I mean, I think that was one of the great things about kind of this wave of energy is that there, it just brought so much talent out because especially young talent, um, you, you know, you saw like all, a lot of our best candidates were, you know, millennials or young Gen X. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were people, you know, people had worked in the Obama administration, maybe like talented people like that, or just, you know, had, you know, really, you know, you know, ahead of the class kids, you know, the people that, you know, basically for better or for worse that, you know, did well in the Obama era. Um, but, you know, and on the Republican side, you know, because of the generational differences, they just don't have that bench of talent that Democrats do. Um, and, you know, it really showed in 2018. But, you know, it's a big problem for Republicans going forward because um, you can't find a young Republican who won like a really contested race that like, you know, who's the Republican of the future coming out of 2018? You know, Dan <laughs> Crenshaw, I guess. That's a terrific, terrific point. Yeah, Dan Crenshaw is your is your future. He's the best one, and yeah, I mean, you know, he's okay, but also he won a pretty Republican seat. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, th- there was no young Republican coming out of this like really uh, with a shock win. Um, you know, the, the Republican shock winners were in mostly you know, I guess the, the biggest Republican shock winner was Rick Scott. Right. I, sure. I, I, and, yeah, the, yeah, stunned, yeah, stunned and shocked. We all like teeter off into the. I know, I know. The sunset, trying to get our heads around how Rick Scott. I'm, I'm, st- I'm, so. st- I'm, I'm still furious about that. Like that, that yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. if it weren't for Florida, yeah, I would have been so happy about the 20. <laughs> now I like, I, I carry that with me. Like heading into 2020, I'm like, we have to make up for that. Hell we have yeah. to make up for the, the massive fuck up in Florida. Yeah, that's but that that feels like that that's a good solid Democratic Party line though. So you know, it's just it's it's you know, it's yeah, it's a pretty recurrent theme. Yeah, just being being disappointed in having to make up for our our fuck ups in Florida. Uh, so one of this, I, I do want to stay a little bit with this question of contested primaries though. I just because there you, you there is a species of Democrat who and this is mainly applied to the presidential, which we're less interested in talking about today, but who, who tends to view seriously contested democratic primaries as a bad thing. The idea being like, we've got to get in behind one candidate and be unified all the way. But to my mind, a lot of the best candidates that came out of 2018, the ones that you mentioned, uh, also Katie Porter in the California 45th, like I came out of a, a, you know, I mean a real knife fight of a primary and, and won it on her, you know, message and professionalism. Uh, you know, those are the, some of our best candidates came out of these really stiff primaries. And I, you know, I think Democrats actually do pretty well when we have to go through a primary cycle, it seems like. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, there's this subset of Democrats who kind of see politics as almost like fan culture where, uh, you know, yes. you know, people get, get behind like the guy. And, you know, if you, if you question the guy, that means that you're not a real fan. Uh, and it, it's a bad way of looking at politics, but it seems, I, I think it's fading away. And yeah, I mean, you can't point to a single seat that Democrats lost because there was a contested primary. Um, mm-hmm. I, I certainly can't think of one. Yeah. Um, and I, th- you know, that's a good, I mean, you know, and keep in mind the greatest democratic election of the last 50 years was 2008. Now you want to talk about a nasty primary? <laughs> that thing was vicious. 
I was an Obama guy back then. I remember telling a friend that I'd vote for McCain over Hillary. Now, I mean, I, that obviously wasn't going to be the case, but it's like, that's how, that's how vicious that primary was. And, and a lot of people forget that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, and primaries are very healthy. And what they do is, you know, they force people to think about what the party stands for. And I think, you know, people really, and I'm hope and it seems like the party learned the lessons from 2016 where, you know, obviously everyone tried to kind of close the ranks behind Clinton and kind of shut down that debate. And Sanders um, really showed that there's an appetite for, you know, a more fulsome discussion of these issues. And, you know, after Trump won, that really burst to the fore of, you know, what, you know, it forced people to decide, well, what do we really stand for? And if you want something like a Green New Deal, if you want something like a high, uh, you know, a very, you know, uh, 50% plus tax rate on the highest earners. If you want that stuff, you need a democratic primary because the default stance for any politician will be to get the most votes possible. And if they don't have to worry about their left flank, then that's, it's going to be in the middle. Mm-hmm. So that- you need good. Yeah. So you need to, I mean, these primaries are necessary because you need to get politicians to stand for things right now. Like almost every house freshman, you know, supports some form of universal health care. That would be unthinkable if it was just party bosses selecting candidates that, and they didn't have to go before primary electorates. Mm-hmm. Is this also a function? Is, is there a generational component to this as well within the Democratic uh, Party? I, absolutely. Um, I think that, um, you know, Alex Perrine has, has uh, ruminated on this a bit. Uh, he's wary of Generation X because of kind of how they came up. I, I actually think younger Generation X is probably uh, uh, more open to things. But yeah, I mean, Democratic politicians really who came up in the 80s and the 90s are kind of permanently fighting out, out of a defensive crouch. I mm-hmm. think anyone who came up really after like, you know, someone like me, you know, I'm 34 and, you know, I think Napoleon said to understand a man, understand the world when he was 20. And for mm-hmm. me, that was, you know, Bush winning reelection against, you know, running on, you know, against gays and for an illegal war. And um, it's, you know, it's, and so for people like me, it's, it's, and John Kerry was seen as kind of, you know, basically, um, you know, he tried to coalesce on both those points. He ended up failing. Mm-hmm. Um so, I mean, you know, it's really someone who kind of sees the model of democratic success, success as like Bill Clinton instead of Barack Obama. That's the person you should be wary of because that person sees, you know, basically selling out your base to win uh, swing voters is the way Democrats win. And, you know, that formula, you know, has been replicated many times and it, it really hasn't been effective. And I think, you know, people are seeing that stand for a positive vision of governance and things that will improve people's lives. That's really how you win elections and then create durable majorities. And, and my, you know, I think millennials see the world that way. I think some of the oldest politicians like Pelosi, I think, does kind of see it that way, because, you know, if you came up in the 60s, I think you still had that view. But the Clinton era really, you know, people who have the Clinton era mindset um, and permanently fighting out a defensive crouch and permanently afraid of the Reagan 84 landslide. Those are the people that you need to be afraid of. Is that, do you think, because of a narrowing uh, persuasion universe, so there are fewer swing voters to go after, or is this to do with a less, dur- less durable enthusiasm in the base? So, I mean, at one point, at one point, it did it did work as a model for a while, and we saw yeah. that in the Atlantic as well. So, uh, you know, so... Uh, 
but but I, I concur. I think things have things have clearly changed. Like there is there is a need for a different politics here. Is it that it's harder to keep Democrats fired up if you aren't taking a a, a more progressive position, or that there are fewer swing voters uh, to to go after, or both? Um, I think you know as politics becomes more tribal, there are fewer swing voters. I think. Uh, you know, obviously the the universe of elastic voters keeps shrinking, um, you know, because right now really the swing voter out there, you know, it has to be non-evangelical white people are swing voters, basically. That's how you have to see it. Um, you know, largely, you know, minority populations really largely Democratic, evangelical populations largely Republican, and it's tough to move them off those positions. Um, so you have, so non-evangelical swing, uh, white people are, are the swing vote. Um, and then if you dig into that deeper, um, you know, non-college educated are moving away from Democrats, college educated are moving toward Democrats. Um, so what does that mean for, um, kind of that? So, yeah, um, like chasing, so chasing those swing voters, um, I think that, you know, it's not so much that, I don't think they really respond very much to like centrism uh, more broadly because, you know, centrism is really, you know, when you, when you talk about a moderate voter, it's rarely like someone who believes in the moderate position. You're talking about someone who has like a scattershot idea, like, a, like all over the place, like, you know, oh, they want a Green New Deal, but they're also like super you know, pro-life or anti-immigrant or something. And, and I think that universe of people responds well to candidates who they think are genuine and actually like believe in something. It seems a good time to be a progressive who's willing to take their own side in a fight. Uh, and maybe it always has been. Uh, but that's that's been kind of, I think, the Democratic Party's problem is that we've been seen as people who aren't willing to take their take our own side in a fight. And when you talk about a moderate voter, I just want to want to pick up on that because this speaks, I think, to a broader misunderstanding of what bipartisanship is when voting is, you know, you get there there is, you know, research all the time says that but what voters want is bipartisanship. Uh, but if you dig a little bit deeper, the concept of what most voters actually identify as bar- bipartisanship is we want the other side to vote with us, right? Like we want everyone to vote for the same thing, but we want them to vote for what we think is the right thing. That's bipartisanship. Not we're all going to come together and hammer out some sort of some kind of actual middle position here. Uh, and I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding that has dogged the Democratic Party since probably the late nineties. You know. Yeah, and I mean, I think. And again, as politics becomes more tribal, you know, there's less need, you know, there, there's less to be gained from being seen as bipartisan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think bipartisanship, what it really is shorthand for, um, you know, being willing to govern the country effectively, really, because, you know, especially in divided government, being bipartisan is, you know, being willing to cut the deal necessary to kind of move things along. Um and, you know, when it and now it's because you're dealing with the snake pit of, you know, fascists and ethno-nationalists, um, it's really, you know, bipartisanship for Democrats should really be, you know, just trying to get, you know, whatever that, you know, it, it's not like trying to meet them at their positions. It's, you know, basically just trying to like keep the government, you know, somewhat functional while you drive them out of power. I mean, that's what bipartisanship should be. Mm-hmm. 
this is and and that project is going. I think I think we can all agree extremely well, uh, uh, in terms of functionality, tremendous. Uh, so can can we talk a little bit about what you're doing now? So let's talk about Give Smart. Uh, so yeah. how did Give Smart come about? Uh, Give Smart came about uh, really from me looking at uh, Democratic fundraising reports in October 2018 and seeing that these candidates had more money than they ever could spend usefully. And what I, you know, what I thought was that what we need to do is we need to get Democrats to, uh, especially small donors, give money in races where they'll really make a difference. And so I went about finding state legislative races where, uh, you know, I thought that, you know, the fundraising levels were a little lower, but they were Democrats running in swingy or, you know, favorable seats in chambers that could possibly flip to them. Um, and, you know, I worked with Sean McElwee at Data for Progress, really, uh, you know, to kind of um, just get the word out. Um, we and so, you know, we started, you know, we, we made an appeal on Twitter and it just blew up. I mean, I thought maybe we'd raise like twenty, forty thousand dollars. We ended up raising almost a million dollars. People were just really responsive to the message of wanting to donate more effectively, I think. You know, and, you know, looking at, you know, and so as part of that, you know, you kind of look at who donated and, you know, there, and there are so many people out there who had never donated to Democrats before. And in 2018, they're like really flying blind and just, you know, giving money to whoever came across it because, you know, they were were so concerned about the direction of our country. Um, And, you know, that's great. But what we need to do is that we need to take all these people that are willing to, you know, donate money to improve the country and be like, well, you know, this is the most effective way for you to give, especially, um, you know, for smaller donors, um, you know, like you giving, you know, I mean, you giving like 20 bucks to a presidential candidate will certainly make you feel good, but it's not a very like effective thing to do. The most effective thing for you to do is to give to a state legislative candidate, especially because, um, real, you know, we, as we've seen, especially, you know, in Michigan and Wisconsin, you know, state, you know, state government can be just as bad as Washington, D.C. when you let Republicans run the thing. And it really has a meaningful impact on people's lives. Um, so after, you know, so we ended up raising all that money and I'm like, well, I want to do this full time. So uh, I, I looked at kind of people that partnered with us on this and I approached a group called Future Now. Um, and, you know, what what I I'd only seen kind of the end result of what future now had done. And I saw they picked some great candidates um, and I wanted to know more. And then, so I talked to um, our founder and uh, executive director, Daniel squadron. And he uh, you know, and I learned that, you know, he, he had a pretty rigorous methodology, not just for picking candidates, but also for where to spend money and when uh, and, to, and like the most effective tactics and really making sure that donor there's as little waste as possible uh, for donor money, and I'm you know I'm like this is exactly what I wanted to do. This is what I've been. This is what I was trying to do with House Party when originally when I saw people giving money to grifter candidates. It's like I want to replumb the donation universe so that people are giving money, uh, you know, when it's when and where it's needed most. Um, and so that's, that's really the goal. And so I joined future now, um, I am director of the give smart donation program there. Um, and I'm, I, I do research as well. Um, 
And it's great. And, and so right now we're basically researching, you know, where we should target it in 2019 and 2020. And so, you know, I'm spending my, you know, I'm spending my weekend uh, just looking at, uh, you know, various ways we can measure um, which seats we should target. Um, and, you know, and if people sign up for our newsletter, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm put to share some of what we're learning uh, because we want people to kind of understand you know, how to decide where to target. And I think a lot of it, you know, on the state level, uh, you know, obviously at the U S house level, um, you know, Trump performance was certainly, uh, really quite indicative of where Republicans were most vulnerable. And on the state level, you know, it stands to reason that not just Trump, but also, you know, gubernatorial, gubernatorial and other statewide performances, um, will be similarly indicative, you know, in those States. So, uh, we're just trying to figure out, you know, I think heading into 2019 and 2020, we want to make sure our methodology is as sound as possible to find uh, which, you know, which measurements are, are most predictive. Um, and so that's what we're working on right now. Just uh, so that, you know, I, I want it to be, again, uh, you know, similar to the house party model where, you know, it, it's, it's all based on, you know, fundamentals and not, you know, the day to day of the news cycle. Yeah, I think you've really hit on something important. And and Frank, you and I talked about this at some point last year, kind of that we're in the great age of grift when it comes to politics. Um, and I like that you use that the, the word exactly the way you did. Um, and I've been curious about, maybe you have a better idea about it, but you know, you kind of look at the barriers to entry to run used to be, you know, you need to get signatures, you need to get money together to do some polling, you need to get some money together to, to put an ad together and then buy TV time or radio time, et cetera, et cetera. And all those barriers have dropped. It's easier to get signatures now because, you know, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and everything else, all the prices have dropped, you know, by multiples of 10, obviously, 100 even. And I'm curious if the combination of the lower barriers to entry plus the kind of just general anger um i'm not even I, I don't even necessarily say interest i think it's general anger um about the direction of the country has created this great age of grift i mean we talk in, you know on this podcast we talk and laugh all the time about the republican party and particularly the trump administration um are just you know world-class grifters but we see it on our side also and i think the way that you were describing the work that you were trying to do in 2018 really epitomizes that there is a problem and there needs to be a solution. And it seems like some of the stuff that you're suggesting is that solution. Yeah. I mean, I would say a lot of the money that um, goes at the door that we don't like how it's spent, it's not necessarily grift. It's just kind of people using old fashioned ways of spending money that might not be the most nimble or effective. It's not kind of actively trying to scam people though. There certainly is that element out there. Um, and we saw some of those candidates, but largely, on the Democratic side, those candidates largely ended up not, uh, you know, the grifters, you, you know, weren't very effective. I mean, I think there are the, the bigger issue is there are some organizations out there like Scott Dworkin, uh, funder on Twitter. Um, he has a particularly, you know, he has an organization that spends almost all its money on, you know, staff salaries. Uh, that's not the type of organization that people should be donating to. Um, you know, people should really be giving not only, so, you know, it's not just that, it's not just that people should be really using as much of their money as possible to help campaigns, uh, instead of just, you know, kind of, uh, line pockets, but it's, you know, what, what, because there are a lot of group, you know, and I, you know, there are a lot of groups out there that really do that maybe aren't quite effective, but they're not trying to scam people. It's just that they might be using outdated methods or they may not be targeting very well. You know, so there, there are well-intentioned people, 
uh, out there who might not be performing as well as they could. And I think heading into 2019 and 2020, I think, you know, if, if, if we can do well, if, if we can show people that donors are really responsive to a group that um, shows people how effective they are, it'll force everyone else to do that. And it'll end up really improving the entire democratic ecosystem. The grifters will always be there. There'll be no way to get rid of them. Um, but you I think you can cut them know, off at the pass before they raise half a million dollars on the effectiveness. Sorry. Yeah. If you can cut them off before they raise, raise half a million dollars from a decent ad, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like the people who are like, you know, ask people for money to put up a billboard. Right. Um, like that, that's obviously a scam. Uh, but you know, again, it, and I, I don't want to name, uh, too many other groups. Yeah. You know, it's because, you know, in the interest of professionalism, uh, but yeah, there are people out there very well intentioned who just, you know, they didn't do a good job of spending their donors money. And, you know, we, if we can kind of replumb the universe where donors expect effectiveness and results, instead of just, you know, throwing money down a hole to feel good about themselves, then that'll be really great for the democratic party. And it'll be really great for kind of beating back this fascist menace that we have right now. Yeah. It seems like politics is so ripe for things like charity navigator or guide star, where there's an objective group that looks at things and looks at a record of achievement and gives you a score and says, okay, I know if I give money to these folks, it's being used effectively in politics. It's obviously harder because things are changing every 18 months, essentially. Yeah. Um, I, you know, uh, I think that would probably be a good idea. Um, I'm not sure how you, you know, I think chair, you know, because everything is so new, you don't really have the guidelines that someone like charity navigator would have for theirs. Um, so I think, you know, we might be, you know, just, we might not have enough data to set up something like that, but I mean, it would certainly be great for donors to have something like that where you see, um, you know, just, you know, really who the most effective groups are. And we're, it's worth pointing out <clears throat> that uh, for, for any of our listeners who may have heard Charity Navigator and GuideStar and, and jumped out of their chairs a little bit, uh, th- this is not necessarily a defense of the, like, not necessarily a defense of their approach. And it's relevant because I like what they're, what they are setting out to do. And I like the idea of something like this for politics. What we have seen, and this Bobby, I think is not a problem for what you are what you are trying to do here. But what we have seen in some of these organizations that very reasonably try to make sure that charity dollars are being spent well is they've fallen back on a false rubric of uh, of overhead versus uh, programmatic spending. So right. you know, if you spend too much on 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 personnel and too little on programmatic spending, then you're obviously a bad a bad nonprofit. And and there is there are we've all you know we've all seen them there are you know super PACs out there in politics where that are exactly what you just described Bobby where it's all staff salary very little programmatic spending uh, that is that is a straight up scam and we all and, and those you can usually tell those pretty easily or uh, you know Mike Murphy with Jeb yeah what we well yeah I mean that's a I mean no they were I mean <laughs> they were doing they, they were doing real I can't tell if that was a scam or just a colossal colossal fuck up. Uh, I think it really kind of bridged the the gap between them, but what we what I happened, think it started happened, as one and turned into the other. Yeah, what I would say yeah. is we, what we would want to avoid is a you know is basically a world in which what happened with charity and I think it was Charity Navigator that got in trouble because ultimately what happened was nonprofits were if you wanted to get a good score you had to spend almost yeah. nothing on staff and everything on program and as a result you couldn't afford to keep good professionals. Yeah. So right. yeah, there has to be a balance not, there. Yeah, that's not um, a danger I think for what you're doing here, Bobby at all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why, you know, 
I, I was a bit hesitant to like, yeah, we should do it now. I mean, I think it's, you know, I'd want to see kind of which groups perform best uh, by certain measurements over time. But I mean, I think, you know, there should be a way, I think today, like you said, the places that spend a hundred percent on salary or, you know, or like their own consultants that are you know owned by them, stuff like that, that stuff. I mean, if there's some kind of central reporting on really scam packs, um, that would be great for just, you know, eliminating that waste, um, from the universe. And then, you know, again, really letting all the good faith players out there, um, to, you know, kind of keep trying to figure out what works best and where to best spend this money that people want to spend to get rid of Republicans, but aren't quite sure how. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's fair. And I think that's what, what you're doing is really, is really laudable and necessary in that perspective. And one of the, the challenges it seems to me is, uh, these same organizations, you know, you have long-term, you, have, you know, long-lived organizations that change leadership, that change methodology, uh, and and that and that often try out new and effective for them, new and effective techniques uh, that hadn't been tried before. So, right. uh, you know, I'll give you a good example. It's like the DTRIP did more investment in field organizing this cycle than they have in maybe a decade. Uh, or longer. I mean, actually putting field organizers on the ground in places where we didn't even have candidates. That, I think, the data pretty well bears out, and I speak under correction here, Bobby, um, was was a pretty good investment, especially in Orange County. But at the same time, its primary mechanism was still ad, TV ad buys, which I think probably everyone understands are at, are at best a diminishing return uh, medium. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, you, know, you have these kind of mixed bag organizations. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I, I think right now, instead of, you know, kind of doing that, creating that kind of potentially dangerous race to the bottom on like staff salaries, what, you know, you should try to do now is simply, you know, try to figure out who's working in good faith and who isn't. That's the first thing you figure out. And then once you've kind of clear, you know, done that, then you can kind of, you know, try to use various measures of kind of what works and what doesn't. And again, you give them leeway to see, you know, what may work. And I, you know, I think, you know, for example, TV, you know, I think there is some valid criticism of what, you know, is spent on TV and what isn't and, you know, how that money can often go to better things. But at the same time, you know, it's almost, you know, TV is like trench warfare and that's really, you know, I, I see TV as kind of like, that's where you, you like really soak the big donors for and outside groups and you rely on them for TV because if you're not on air uh, and the other side is, that can lead to a loss. I think um, the big example of that, the cycle is, you know, Kara Eastman, for example, in Nebraska. Um, she, you know, I, you know, if she had had the level of outside spending that her opponent had, she might have won. Um, and the, you know, I mean the big, you know, she barely, I think it was like, she lost by like four points and you could probably say that she lost because she wasn't on TV and there were attacks against her that she couldn't answer on TV. Um, so, you know, I, I know that like spending your money on TV is certainly less sexy. It, it's less uh, effective, less money ball, but it is a, a, you know, a necessary evil still, uh, for better or for worse. I think that certainly is declining, especially, uh, for generational reasons as, um, you know, you know, more, you know, as more and more young people shift to streaming, but there's still a shitload of voters who watch a lot of broadcast TV and, you know, television advertising as much as we hate it still matters. Indeed it does. And, and this is the, this is the frustrating thing about a lot of methodologies out there. There are new and, you know, and precise methods coming out all the time and, you know, digital and organizing and other things. But, but a lot, ultimately a lot of this stuff just comes back to, to pretty blunt instruments of which TV might be the bluntest. But, but as yeah. you say, like you can't really afford to unilaterally disarm. 
Yeah, that, yeah, that's the problem. Um, I, I don't think there was a single Democrat who won in 2018 uh, if they were, weren't on TV and their opponent was. Yeah, uh, yeah that, that pretty well holds up. So looking, looking ahead, uh, let's just talk a little bit. We've talked some about 2020, uh, but I'd like to get your thoughts on what the party, either prognostications at the state and, uh, and congressional level or what the party writ large, the, you know, the, the, you know, the committee's candidates, uh, the whole kind of progressive space, uh, what, we, what, we, what we should be looking for, what we should be doing. What are your, what are your thoughts on, on 2020 at the congressional level? So, I, you know, I mean, the biggest thing that will affect 2020 is totally out of all of our control, and that is the performance of the economy. Um, the economy was doing incredibly well when Republicans had a bad midterm. Um, who, if the economy is not doing well in 2020, it will be a very bad year for Republicans. Um, and so, listen, we, we can't control that. Uh, we don't know. Yeah, I mean, certainly there are a lot of indicators out there that seem to show that we will be in a recession soon. Um, how soon? We don't know. How bad? We don't know. Uh, there's not much we can do about that. I think what, what we can do right now is, you know, it's really just planning. And, you know, we want to set ourselves up best possible to ride that wave into 2020 and to elect, uh, you know, uh, Congress and state legislature le- legislatures that will support bills that will make people's lives better. Um, and so what does that mean? I mean, I think it means, you know, I think these discussions that people are having right now about what those policies uh, will be, I think it's helpful. You know, what is the optimal highest income tax bracket? It's a conversation that we should have because we're going to have to pay for all this. Um, you know, it's like the green new deal. What should a green new deal look like? Uh, you know, HR one and how do we root out corruption in Washington? Um, you know, all, all that stuff. I mean, that, those are the things that we should be thinking about right now. Um, and we also, you know, I think what, what Democrats did a great job of in 2018, it was probably they ran good candidates almost everywhere. Um, and so again, finding good candidates to run everywhere um, so they could potentially take advantage of a, you know, of a good democratic year. So you can put in place, you know, democratic majorities who can improve people's lives and maybe stay in power. Um, that is what we should be thinking about. This is good advice. Um, and, and I think, is there, do you have any sort of sense of what, um, particularly outside groups should be thinking about for uh, help at the state legislative uh, level. So we've we've seen there's a big crush of outside you know third party super PAC and other advocacy groups looking at the congressional level in 2018 for obvious reasons. I do think uh, in, in your organization is a great example of this. Uh, there's been a lot more time uh, and time and money spent on house legislate on house on uh, state le- state legislation state legislative races I should say um, than we you know after a decade or more of absolute neglect. Uh, do you have any sort of general advice for outside groups that want to do good things at the state legislative level? Uh, email me uh, so we can talk. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think if you want to do well, good at the state legislative level, I think you, know, you need to, right now, you should be spending it doing what I'm doing and trying to figure out which seats Democrats could take over in 2020, um, in which states. Uh, in 2019, because there are state legislative elections in 2019, uh, Virginia will be the headliner there because there's a pretty good chance Democrats will win a trifecta there mm-hmm. uh, for the first time in Virginia since I think the 90s. 
Um, so, but also in 2020, which states could we flip? Um, you know, start looking at that uh, and, and just kind of start crunching those numbers, thinking about, you know, kind of build a case for why a state legislative chamber could flip. Uh, look at um, look at where outside spending is the greatest, um, because maybe, um, you know, again, if the holder group is going to spend, you know, $10 million in a state, well, you know, maybe you can defer to them a little bit. Uh, but if it's a smaller state uh, with that might end up being a little more flippable than people thought, then you can have a more outsized impact. And, you know, I think, you know, the holder group in particular, I think, uh, you know, it, looking at the redistricting landscape for 2020, um, the Texas house and the Florida house are Republican controlled, but flippable in 2020. Um, and so, you know, if I'm the whole, if I'm, you know, a, a wealthy person and I know that you have many uh, billionaires listening to your podcast, um, I would focus. We're huge. We're huge at uh, Davos. Uh, we're just, we're so big at Davos, man. I can't even begin to describe. Yeah. Um, no, I, I mean, if, if I were someone who could cut uh, a $10 million check, I would focus it. If I were Tom Steyer, Tom Steyer, if you're out there, spend a ton of money trying to flip the Florida house and Texas house, uh, start recruiting candidates for those seats now. Um, start training them up, uh, get ready to spend on them heading into 2020. And if you can flip the Florida house and Texas house, you will prevent Republican gerrymanders, uh, governing about almost, you know, like 55 to 60 seats. Um, that is quite an endorsement. Yeah. For, and for, just for any listeners who aren't clear, um, this is the, we're talking about the national democratic redistricting committee, which is chaired by Eric Holder. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, it's, it's quite all right. It's a, that is, that is generally how it is, how it is known. It's how most people I know refer to it. So, um, all right. This has been, uh, this has been an excellent conversation. Uh, we, I would love to talk about restructuring, uh, democratic efforts to win back state legislative uh, races, uh, all indeed all morning and all afternoon. Um, uh, but it is time now, uh, for us to move on, uh, to the lightning round, uh, which Ooh. is a, a short series of questions, uh, about which we gave you no warning. So consider yourself ambushed by these, uh, by these revealing, but I think, uh, quite, quite fieldable four questions. Uh, so Ellie, would you kick us off with the first question of the lightning round? Absolutely. And, uh, let me, uh, Give, say my thanks for for joining us today. This has been uh, really terrific, and I apologize for not being able to be fully participative, but I was listening. Um, so with that, uh, can you give us the name of a book or a piece of music or film or television program, really any piece of culture that uh, you may have seen recently that you'd recommend to our listeners? Uh, the favorite. Mm, all right. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are saying good things. You really, you really do hear it more, more and more. And more yeah. the favorite is. <laughs> uh, have, do you, is there a, a particular food or a drink that you've had recently that you would recommend to our listeners? Um, I'm trying to think of the best thing I've eaten recently. Um, if if you're in New York, uh, go to Ugly Baby in Carroll Gardens. Best Thai food you'll ever eat, at least in the U.S. I think this is the second time someone's brought that up. Didn't David Roth bring that up, Frank? Uh, maybe. He brought awesome. up a Thai place in a mall in Queens, I think. Yeah, oh, no, no, no. this right. is uh, far more hipster than that. No, right. no, this, yeah, this <laughs> is Carol Gardens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. I think I think it was Roth. Maybe. I'd... Yeah, that's a, that sounds right. That's an extremely Roth thing to have done. All right. Uh, next question: What is the last physical uh, CD or album that you bought? You know, before everything, before you started buying everything digitally. Oh my God. Um, Probably a uh, Fish or Dave Matthews band bootleg. <laughs> That's an amazing answer. 
Yeah, that's that's <laughs> terrific. That is such a wonderful example from its time and place. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, okay, so this this may be an easy one. So in the Trump era, uh, lots of people are interested in doing something. What is an organization you'd recommend that our listeners support and why? Well, there are so many out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd have to say uh, Future Now and the Future Now Fund. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That seems reasonable. Um, I think I think we, a good case has been made here. Uh, terrific. Well, Bobby, think, is there anything else, Bobby, that you would like to say before we uh, bring this interview to a close? Uh, no, I mean, just uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm always happy to talk about, you know, I, I think th- these are conversations that we should all be having, thinking about, you know, we all want Trump gone. How do we do it? And I think that's what we're talking about right now. I think it's healthy and helpful to have those conversations. And, uh, you know, you should not take those conversations again. This isn't fan culture. We're like trying to figure this out. Uh, we're building the show. We're building the jet as, as it's flying. And so just, you know, let's just keep at it. Awesome. Bobby, thank Great. you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks, if, you wanna, if you want to stick on for two minutes, we will do our outro and then uh, it'll save us a little bit of recording pain in the ass. So uh, <laughs> uh, thank you so much for joining us, Bobby. Um, this has been really terrific. Frank, as always, great to be with you. Uh, we will likely all be back next week. Unclear. Uh, Frank is in the midst of doing the Oregon Trail out west. Uh, so we're not sure exactly when we will all regroup. Uh, but in the meantime, you can follow Maggie at Maggie M012, Frank at Frank Spring, me at Ellie Jacobs, and of course, follow all of us at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P, as in um, patricide. Um, With that, Frank, where are we headed this week? We're headed this week to Tokyo, uh, where Japan's self-styled King of Tuna just paid uh, slightly over $3 million for a 612-pound bluefin tuna. The bluefin tuna is endangered. Uh, and we are going to uh, to Tokyo to have a word with this self-styled king of tuna to find out exactly from what authority he derives his title, and also uh, to point out to him uh, that this is not how we win the war on the sea. Uh, there are rules of engagement and also return on investment for uh, for a uh, for endangered bluefin tuna is terrible. Uh, we we need we need more we need larger and more effective and more efficient means of winning the war on the sea. Being three million dollars for a single fish is not going to get us there. Uh, this is both wrong and completely absurd. So, friends, we take ship now for Tokyo to have a word with His Majesty the King of Tuna. Take care, everybody. Take care.